Welcome to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. This week, we are in a series called Fear Less. The phrase, don't be afraid, appears in the Bible more than any other biblical command, and for good reason. People of all generations have struggled to trust God when facing difficult or scary situations. Join us for Fear Less and learn from the biblical stories that can help us face our fears with faith. Well, good morning. After I graduated from Bible college and eventually I made my way to Morgantown, um, I ended up going back to school to get a business degree or to finish a business degree. One of the courses that I needed to take was a psychology course. And this particular course seemed to be like a general psychology course about important questions of life, like what is the meaning of life and, and why is there evil in the world and what's the solution to the problem of evil in the world and things like that. Well, early on in the semester, the teacher of this course offered to give uh, extra credit to any student who'd be willing to do a speech in the class. And the speech could be about anything, anything related to the psychology or whatever else. Well, as soon as the teacher mentioned that about getting extra credit for a speech or whatever, I felt like God wanted me to volunteer to do a speech, and I did not want to do it. I just did not want to do it because I felt what God wanted me to do was to share the gospel. You see, throughout the course up to this point, the teacher had mentioned on several occasions, we don't know about this, and we don't know why this happens, and we don't know how to fix this and that. And oftentimes, when the teacher said that, in my mind, I thought, well, the Bible has the answer to that. You know, we, we know, for example, people are created in the image of God. That's where our value comes from. We know, we know how sin came into the world and all these kinds of things. And so I, w- I would think that, as the teacher would be talking in the various classes, And so when she offered that anyone could do a speech, I I, I just kind of felt like God wanted me to step in and say it's about Jesus, but I didn't want to do it. So I waited several days and I I prayed about it. I I don't know if arguing with God is the right word for it, but I, 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 I just didn't want to do it. I told God that. I don't want to do it. I'm willing, but I don't want to do it. And after several days, I decided, no, I, I just have to do this. So after the uh, class one day, I walked up to the teacher and I said, uh, you had mentioned about doing a speech in class and how you can get extra credit and this and that for doing a speech. I said, I want to do, I wanna do a, a, a talk in the class here, but uh, before you agree to let me do the talk, I want you to know what it's about. And I said, the title of my talk is how Jesus answers the questions that psychologists are raising. I said, throughout this course, you've been you know, mentioning all these different things, and we don't know the answer to this or that, and I think Jesus is the answer. But um, if you'd rather me not do the talk, and I really was hoping that that's what she would conclude. I was hoping she'd come up with some kind of church and state thing, and you can't do your talk, and then I'd be off the hook, because I would have demonstrated my tremendous courage in being willing to do it without actually having to do it. But she said, I think it's a great idea. And so we set the date for, and I thought, now I'm trapped. And in the, the days leading up to that talk, I, it, I had all kinds of sleepless nights. I just really, this, I was scared to death to do this. This was before I was a pastor. This was before I'd done many talks at all. I was petrified 
at the whole thought of it, but I had agreed to do it, and, and so I guess I'm going to do that. And so the day arrived, and I showed up in the class, and the teacher said, we have a special uh, segment this morning. Uh, one of the students, one of your fellow students, is going to be doing uh, a talk here today, and so I'll give him a round of applause or whatever, and I walked to the front. I stood in front of the teacher's desk. She had moved over to the corner to kind of watch, and I was just leaning on the, the desk there, and then I opened my mouth, and something happened when I opened my mouth. I was filled with a boldness I didn't think I ever had. I, I couldn't believe it. I'd been terrified of that very moment, but the moment I stood in front of that desk and I opened my mouth, I was filled with boldness. I think it's exactly what I think uh, the, the uh, disciples of Jesus felt in Acts 4.31. It says, when they had prayed, referring to the disciples, the place where they were assembled was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak God's message with boldness. It's just a remarkable thought that God is able to instill boldness within our hearts. We say, I don't have boldness. Yeah, but God is able to make us bolder than we are. And then I began my presentation, and I started with a proverb from the Old Testament. I said, one of the wisest guys that ever lived, a guy named Solomon, said this. He said, the one who gives an answer before he listens, this is foolishness and disgrace for him. The one who gives an answer before you listen, before listening, it's foolish. And it's a disgrace. The New Living Translation puts it this way. This is Proverbs 18, 13. Spouting off before listening to the facts is both shameful and foolish. Spouting off before listening first. Well, I realize I've done that a lot over the years. I've spouted off before hearing, just listening. And, so I, and I was trying to make an appeal to the class. Listen, just give me a shot don't knock it down before you've heard what I had to say. After I'm done, you can, whatever, but, but listen first. And then I said, my title is how Jesus Christ can answer, you know, answers the questions that psychologists are asking. And immediately a hand shot up and some young man said, do I have to listen to this garbage? That wasn't uh, how he said it. He was a little bit not as nice. Do I have to listen to this? And the whole class burst out laughing. In unison, they just all, they just exploded with laughter. And I realized why. The guy had fallen into Solomon's trap. He was, he was answering before listening and, and he had just proved himself to be a fool. And everyone in the class saw it but him. <laughs> this is, you know, a person who answers before they hear, they're a fool. And then he raises his hand, I'm a fool. That's what it seemed like to the class. And suddenly they were on my side. And then I began to do a gospel presentation there. I talked about how the... There are a lot of problems in our world today, but I suggest that the, the, they're related to one main thing, and that is sin. That sin just means to miss the mark, and we've all missed the mark. And I said, sin is responsible for all the suffering in this world, either directly or indirectly. God gave Adam and Eve the ability to choose for or against him. They chose poorly. Sin came into the world, and it's ruining the world. I mean, who, who among us could argue that the world would be a, a, a worse place with the Ten Commandments? Isn't, isn't the world a better place if we have things like, you know, don't lie, don't steal, don't cheat, don't commit adultery, don't murder people and stuff like that? Aren't, aren't God's, you know, aren't those, what we find in the pages of the Bible, aren't those life-giving types of things? 
but sin has come between us and our God. And then I did what I call the Romans road. Many of you are familiar with the Romans road, but I want to go through it briefly because this is how you can lead someone to faith in Christ. I said, we all sin. Romans 3.23, I said, all these references come from one book. It's the book of Romans, New Testament. Romans 3.23, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. We all fall short of God's standard of what's right and wrong. Second verse is Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. A wage is something you earn. You deserve it. You work for it. You get your wage. What is the wage we've earned because of sin? It's death. It's that it's physical death. This explains why everyone dies. But it's also spiritual death, which is the separation between us and our God. But the penalty for our sin is death. And they said, how do you fix the problem? Well, I said, we can't fix it because we are the problem. We all sin. I can't fix my sinfulness. I can't get right with God. I, 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 as much as I would try, I can't. The solution has to lie outside of me. In other words, I need a savior, a deliverer. And so I did Romans 5.8, read Romans 5.8, but God proves his own love toward us in the while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God proved tremendous love. He sent his son to be the savior of the world. I said, that's what Christmas and Easter are all about. You know, this amazing story of a baby that was born to a virgin who had not been intimate with a man. Why? Because it was the son of God and God the son. That God sent his own son sinless into this world to live a sinless life so that he could die for us and for our sin. Take upon himself the full penalty of everything we've done wrong. And how do we receive this forgiveness though of sin? How do we get right with God? Because everything else springs from that, I think, being right with God. Well, it's simple, John 3, 16, most famous verse in the Bible. God the loved the world. God loved or proved his own love. I've got this memorized in so many different versions of the Bible. I've got to read the one I have here. But God proves his own love for us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then Romans, or I'm sorry, John 3, 16. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him will not perish. This is how we receive it as a gift. It's, it's belief. It's not earning. It's not something that we can earn. It's only something that we could receive. And then I read the next Romans verse, Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, which is a reference to his deity, and you believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You'll be delivered from the penalty of your sin. We put our trust in Christ. Now, I explain the reason this works is that when a person becomes a Christian, God changes them from the inside out that the Spirit of God actually comes to live inside of you and then he changes you so that, that sin becomes less attractive to you. That's why Christians live differently. And it's the solution. It's one life at a time. As God begins to change us, the world becomes a better place. And that was kind of my thesis. And then I led, actually led the uh, class in a prayer. It felt like a little bit like a church service. I said, most people put their faith in Christ just through a simple prayer to God where they acknowledge their sin and their need for a Savior. A prayer like this. Dear God, I know I've blown it, that I'm a sinner and I can't fix the problem, but I believe you sent your son Jesus to come into the world to die in my place for my sin, and he rose again on the third day. Today, I'd like to trust, place my trust in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. I receive him as my savior. Cleanse me of my sin and give me the gift of eternal life that you promised 
for I come to you in Jesus' name and because of what he did for me, amen. Now, I don't know what I expected to happen when I was done. Um, I, I wasn't expecting anyone to be enthusiastic about the talk, that's for sure. Maybe someone brought stones they could throw at me. At the very least, what I thought was going to happen is when I was done with the talk, the rest of the semester was going to be really painfully um, awkward for me because I was going to walk into the room and everyone's going to look at it, oh, it's that Jesus freak guy, and then I'm going to be like, no one's going to come anywhere near me. That's what I thought was going to happen. But when I was done, they applauded enthusiastically. And I almost started laughing because it caught me so off guard. I just, just wasn't, I wasn't expecting that. And then when the class was done, a, a bunch of them came up to me and began talking and asking questions and some talking about how they were Christians themselves. And now they felt a little bit more emboldened by this. Now today we're continuing our series uh, titled Fear Less, the first week of the series. We talked about prayer as being one of the resources God has given to us in dealing with fear. There are a lot of resources God has given to us to deal with things in our life and fear in our lives, and so prayer is one of them. Another one, as Arch talked about last week, is the promises of God, and, and God made a number of promises to Gideon. Gideon had trouble believing it time and time again. He said, show me a sign, you know. I'm afraid he did everything out of fear, but God gave him promises, and if he had held on to those, he would have had more courage all along. So the promises of God is significant, but to me, what we're talking about here today is the most important thing, and that is the presence of God. That if you know Jesus Christ, the, the spirit of the living God, the one who raised Christ from the dead is at work in you. He lives inside of you. His presence makes the difference. Just like when I opened my mouth to do the speech, suddenly I just sensed his presence was with me. Now, I mentioned a couple weeks ago when I introduced this series that I felt like I've dealt with fear more than most people when I was growing up. And there were reasons why that was the case, where I just feel like I, I just was afraid of more things than most people. But as I was reflecting on all this, I, I wondered how hard it is to be in this generation right now, if you're a teenager especially, early 20s. I'm thinking about what you've had to face. It's a lot. I think we live in a very fearful world right now. It's, it is a world with wars and rumors of wars and, and battles springing up all over the place. It's a world in which we're just so divided as a country. We can't hardly even talk about things anymore. People just get too upset to be able to discuss things rationally. That's the world we live in. There's uncertainty related to the financial markets. And, and if you watch the news, you'll get discouraged or depressed. It's like the whole world is falling apart. And on and on it goes. You know, we're dealing with things like pandemics and everything else. Some, some of the things that my generation did not have to worry about. And I think we need, we need God's resources. And in addition to all these things related to maybe the world we're living, all of us have our own stuff. We have our own personal fears, fears maybe related to our family, fears related to work, fears related to your health, and on and on. It's understandable that people should be afraid. But one of the greatest resources we have is God is with us, Emmanuel. My takeaway today is if God is with us and he's for us, we don't need to be afraid. And before we're done, I'll prove that he is with us and he is for us. If we, if, if we know Christ... God is with you, God is for you. And because that's true, we don't have to be afraid. Now I want to look at a story that illustrates this in the time that remains. It's a, not a real long story, but it's a story where 
The disciples uh, were very afraid, but they had no reason to be afraid because Jesus was right there with them. It's just they forgot. You know, they found themselves in a storm and somehow they thought that something could happen to them in a boat, in a storm, if Jesus was right there with them. And of course, nothing could happen to them when Jesus is with them. And I would say the same thing is true about us. If God is with us, nothing, there are no accidents in a sense. Our God is with us and he's for us. And let me set the context for this. Jesus had been teaching uh, most of the day, it seems like. He was, uh, there were so many people gathered that he actually had, uh, did his talk from a boat. And so they tethered a boat to the shore, and then he, he stood in the back of the boat, so there'd be a big gap there, and then he began to teach the people. And he, I think he, did, he was there for a long time. Uh, then it was evening time, and... Um, Normally, I think he would have said, pull in the boat and let's go. But in this case, he said, let's cross to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And so that's where we pick up the story in Mark 4 and verse 35. We read, on that day when evening came, Jesus told them, let's cross over to the other side of the sea. So they left the crowd took him along since he was already in the boat and other boats were with him. Now, let me mention a couple things here. Number one, it says when evening had come, and, and I, I think that detail is kind of important with this story because this was a scary story for these disciples, but it was more scary at night. And I think this is an important detail to the story. This happened at night. I don't know if you've ever been in a storm at night where you can't see anything at all. In this case, they were in the middle of a lake. They couldn't see anything, and it's pitch dark, and it felt like the boat was going to sink, as we'll see in a minute. And so they were struggling there. But it sets the, the, the tone. Now, I want us also to notice that there were some other boats that were there. So usually when I read this story, I think, well, it was Jesus and the 12, and they just took off. No, there were several boats there. So a lot of people got to experience this wonderful event this wonderful miracle that Jesus was going to perform. Now, to get the context a little bit or to help us understand it just a little bit, a guy named S. Waxman uh, has written a book called The Galilee Boat. And in 1986, a boat was discovered in the, the mud of northern Galilee, right on the Sea of, of Galilee there. And they discovered that this boat, the, the, I guess things had washed away or whatever, and they saw it looked like a boat, they discovered that this boat is dated to the time of Christ. It's, it's not even impossible that Jesus was on that exact boat. We don't know. But he describes what the boat would have looked like. He says the boat was 26 and a half feet long, seven and a half feet wide, and four and a half feet high. Both fore and aft sections of the boat appear to have been covered with a deck providing space on which to sit or lie. The boat was propelled by four rowers, two per side, and has a total capacity of about 15 persons. I want to understand this is not a big boat. Here's a picture, actually, after the first service, someone said, I just got a picture of that boat. He was in Israel like two weeks ago. So this is the boat that they found. I want you to realize what's left of it. They, it was quite an elaborate process to get it out uh, the way they did. But I just want to realize it's kind of small. You got, you know, four people rowing. You could put as many as 15 in there. It was crowded, and then all of a sudden the storm rises up. 
So let's continue reading in verse 35. We read, a fierce windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so that the boat was already being swamped. But he, Jesus, was in the stern, sleeping on the cushion. So they woke him and said to him, teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? Now, before we read any more, I would like to suggest that Jesus knew this was going to happen. I can't say for sure, but I believe that it was God, his father, led Jesus to say, let's go in a boat and cross over. And I think Jesus knew what was coming, but he fell asleep because when you're in the center of God's will like this, you just don't have to worry at all. I mean, honestly, Jesus is a contrast to these disciples. They're freaking out like we're going to die, and he's sleeping. Uh, and I think there's a lesson in that part of the story. But anyway, they accuse him of not caring, which is really odd because no one's ever cared more than Jesus. Now, in addition to the, the smallness of the boat, though, it's important to understand a little bit about this Sea of Galilee and what happened, because the Sea of Galilee is known for sudden squalls. It is not a, a sea, by the way. It's not an ocean. It's a huge lake. It's very, very big. Uh, and it's, it's the, the, the way the lake is, it, it's kind of low. And it's got hills on the side, and it serves as a wind tunnel, and so uh, storms can come out of nowhere. So my first trip to Israel, we were going to take a, a boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. We all gathered there. There was a boat there, and our guide said, we can't go today. We have to go tomorrow. And I said, why? And he said, because of the storm that's coming. And I looked around. I thought, it's perfect here. Sun was out, two little clouds. Everything looked perfect. It's like, what do you mean, a storm? Well, he somehow understood or the conditions were ripe. I don't know how they measured those things, but he knew that if we get out on that boat, we were going to have some trouble. So we ended up waiting the next day. That's the nature of this. Now, the text indicates that while they were in the boat, a fierce windstorm arose. That particular phrase is used somewhere else in the Bible. It comes from the book of Job. Specifically, it's Job 38 and verse 1, and it is translated in the book of Job as whirlwind, uh, or tornado, or hurricane. And now you get a sense, oh, this was kind of like a, like a big deal, this storm. This is, this is like being in the middle of the lake and you see a funnel <laughs> come in your direction, or, or the wind is blowing like a hurricane. That's kind of what it was like, and these guys were scared to death. And, and they, they knew better. I mean, these are people that knew the, the water, so you know if they're afraid, you should be afraid. When I was reading this, I was reminded of the first time I went down scuba diving in, in Cozumel, and we had this one dive that we went down 120 feet, which we weren't supposed to. But there was um, some activity down there, and the photographer wanted us to see it, so he kind of dragged us all down deeper than we were supposed to go. But I was coming out of that at a certain point, and I looked over through the water, and I saw a huge shark. Not a little shark. It was a big shark. Now, we had been told that you don't have to be afraid of the sharks that are there, near Cozumel. They're mostly nurse sharks, I guess they're called. They're not, they're, they're, you don't have to be afraid of them. They don't attack you, but this looks so big. Now, I know in the water, everything looks 30% bigger. So it was massive. It just looked like a big, big shark to me. So I was concerned. I got the dive master's attention, and I pointed over there. And suddenly, when I pointed, a second shark appeared. 
And I expected him to say, uh, you know, I mean, of course, you can't talk underwater. You do it all through signals. But his eyes got really, really big. And I thought, no, your eyes aren't supposed to do that. I'm not supposed to be afraid. I'm looking at this guy, and he was absolutely petrified. And then he goes like this, like we're supposed to slowly drift away, disappear, kind of. I thought, I don't think what they told us before was true. I think those guys could take a leg or two. It eventually, it, it swam away. But you know, if they're, if they're scared, I'm just saying, if they're scared, you ought to be scared. And, and obviously what these disciples were going through really, really scared them. And so they say, don't you care? Don't you care? And when I hear that, I get a little mad at the disciples until I remember I've asked the same question. Because again, I think, don't you care? This is the guy that's going to be hanging on a cross for you. No one's ever cared more, loves you so much. Don't you care? But I know, again, I've done that. It's like, God, don't you see what I'm going through? Don't you realize how difficult this is? Don't you know how afraid I am? Don't you care what I'm going through? Why why aren't you coming here? Why aren't you helping me? And, and, And that's how the disciples were reacting. And this is the kind of thing that I've mentioned many times before, proved to me the Bible's the word of God. There's no attempt to glorify these disciples as if they all had it together, but the rest of us are struggling. No, they were just like David did exactly what I would do. I'd be right there with them saying, Jesus, don't you care? You're sleeping while we're, we're about, this boat's about to sink. And that's, again, I think that's how it feels. But again, my takeaway is if God is with us and he's for us, we don't need to be afraid. So let's continue reading verse 39. We read, he got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, silence, be still. The wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Then he said to them, why are you fearful? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked one another, who then is this? Even the wind and sea obey him. Ultimately, of course, that is the question. Who is this guy? Who is this one that's with us all the time? Now, I love this this scene in the story, I, I've often thought that when I get to heaven, I want to see reruns. Some of these things I just want to see. I want to see the storm in all of its glory, or lack thereof. And then I want to see what happened when he said, quiet. And then all of a sudden, it's like the sun popped up. It got really still. And I mean, they were freaked out by that. That was as freaky to them as that storm had been. I talked about this a few years ago and showed this particular um, Rembrandt painting. It was painted in 1633. It's called Christ in the Storm at the Sea of Galilee. But it's very realistic, although it looks like he had just said, be quiet as things were beginning to clear up. I like it because there's a sailor there that's throwing up over the side of the boat. That's what it was like. I mean, these, these are guys that know about seasickness and they're getting sick. It had to have been really, really bad. But if Christ is with us, if Christ is with us, can anything happen to us? Now, again, I think the biggest issue with these guys is they didn't know who he was. You know, they're raising the question now, exactly who are you? If they had understood who Jesus was, they all would have been sleeping in the boat, maybe. I don't know. Let's read verses 39 and 40 again. It says, we, he got up, 
rebuked the wind and said to the sea, silence, be still. The wind ceased. There was a great calm. Then he said to them, why are you fearful? Do you still have no faith? Of course, that's what the issue is so many times. It's about faith. Uh, The disciples, that was the thing that they were corrected on more than anything else. Oh, you of little faith. Why do you still have no faith? They'd seen Jesus do amazing things. Remarkable miracles, feeding the 5,000, healing people. They'd seen him do all these, even raising from the dead. They'd seen him do these things, and yet every time a new challenge came along, it's like, whoa, we're doomed. And they just did not understand. We don't have to worry. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. He said, don't worry about anything. And every time I read that, I think, well, anything or maybe just most things. You know, I I don't worry about everything, but I want to worry about something. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses every thought, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's that peace of God that can guard our hearts and minds. But it requires giving it over to God, not just praying prayers. You see, I think lots of times we pray. We say, Lord, please help me here and remove this thing or whatever else. But we don't, we have not learned to grab that thing that is so heavy on our shoulders. We grab it and say, here, I want to offer this up to you. I trust you with this thing. So as long as you're holding it, I can go on and I can be joyful. I can have peace. I think that's what Paul is talking about here. But we read that Jesus rebuked the wind. That's a very interesting word that's used there. Uh, The word that's used for rebuke there uh, is used elsewhere in the Gospels of rebuking demons. Almost in every case, he rebuked that demon. He said, quiet, be still rebuke that demon. And here it's used of a storm. And so many theologians believe that this indicates this storm was actually from the devil. And that phrase when he said, silence, be still to the water, the phrase there literally should be translated, be muzzled. (laughs) Muzzle that. Now that was the authority he had as he stood up there. You be quiet. He rebuked it. I rebuke you. You be quiet. Then everything is perfectly still. And then Jesus looks at them and he asks the question, why were you afraid? Now, in the Greek language, there are different words for fear, even as in the English language. In fact, I plan to talk about this a little bit next week because worry is different than anxiety that's different than fear that's different than phobia, some of these things, or whatever. In the Greek language, one of the words for fear is cowardly, a coward. You know, there's kind of being terrified about something, but there's being a coward. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's asking them, why are you being such cowards? Now, I I think their response would be, have you looked around and seen the storm, (laughs) you know? But the implication is they should not have been. There's no reason for them to be cowards, to be afraid in the midst of this. And it's because of who he is. Again, they ask the question, verse 41, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Do you know who it is? He's the God of the Old Testament. Jesus is the God of Psalm 89 and verse 9. In Psalm 89 and verse 9, we discover that God alone rules the raging sea when its waves surge. You still them. There's only one being that is able to still the storm. It is God. 
And a lot of the miracles that Jesus performed are direct fulfillments of verses like this. They're intended to. Jewish people would have recognized, yeah, God is the one who stills the storm. Jesus just did that. So what does that mean about him? Well, it means he's God. He's able to help us. And I think God allowed all this to happen just to reveal to his disciples exactly who this is. So what do we do with well, this? Well, I want us to understand if you know Jesus Christ, the spirit of, of Christ lives in you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Paul spends a lot of time talking about this in Romans chapter 8. Let me look at verse, a few verses here. Verse 31, we read, What then shall we say about these things, Paul wrote, if God is for us, who is against us? Now that looks like it's um, a hypothetical like, if God is for us, who could be against us? But it's not. In the Greek language in which this is written, it, is, it can be translated sense. What do we say about these things? Since God is for us, or if as is the case, God is for us. Because Paul just made the point, God is for us. He just summed up, God is for you, God is for you. And then he asked this question, so if God's for you, who could be against you? The answer, of course, is no one. Well, what can separate us from his love? Verse 35, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction, anguish, persecution, famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Understand something about that verse. Those are realities that we're going to face in our lives. So don't think that when you become a Christian, you don't go through stuff like this. You know, affliction, you will, will go through some affliction, you will go through some anguish, you will go through some persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sort. We're not promised we won't go through those. What we are promised is that in the midst of it, God's love, will nothing will separate you from his love. That's what we need to see in the midst of the storm. He loves us. Paul went on to say in verses 38 and 39, I am persuaded that not even death or life, angels or rulers, things present, things to come, hostile powers, height, depth, or any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our God loves us. His son Jesus loves us. We are in Jesus' hands, and Jesus' hands are in the hands of the Father, and he's holding, holding us tightly. We don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be cowards because he is with us. So by way of application, let me ask these three questions. Number one is, are you just mindful that, that Christ is with you all the time? The very power that raised Christ from the dead is at work within you if you know Christ. Second, do you believe he's for you? I think we struggle with that. I, like, I, I know that you're with me, but I don't know you're for me. Our God is for us. That, that question was settled at the cross that he's for you. And then finally, are you willing to turn your fears over to him? Because I think sometimes that's just what we need to do. We need to grab a hold of those things, wrap them up tight, tightly, and give them over to God. Let him carry it for us. We're going to close by singing a song for you. It's called, I Have This Hope. Some of the words of the song go this way. I don't want to live in fear. I want to trust that you are near. Trust your grace can be seen in both triumph and tragedy. I have this hope in the depths of my soul, in the flood or the fire, you are with me and you won't let me go. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we do have this promise you'll never leave us nor forsake us despite all the things that could come upon us even this coming year. You are our God and you are with us. 
and you love us and nothing will separate us from your love. And help us to walk in the reality of that and help us to understand we do not need to be afraid. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening and we will see you next time.